Folks, please have Matthew's Gospel open there before you in your pew Bible, your own Bible, on your device, or on your Matthew's journal. Did I leave any options out? For those of you who have the, the Matthew's Gospel journal, let me, I love this moment. I get to be the school teacher for a moment. We have about 150 of these in circulation with another 50 waiting to be taken up. It's possible we'll soon have 200 of these knocking around the church. It's also possible that one of you might forget to take yours home and leave it lying in the seat beside you. Would you write your name so that we don't have 200 almost identical uh, books flying around? If you have a pen with you, write your name in there. You, you might be glad of it at some point in the next weeks that we can bring your copy back to you. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've got a question for you this morning as we start. Do you consider yourself smart or stupid? Maybe you're wondering why I would ask a question like that in church. It, it feels more like uh, the question that haunted us on our way through, through school or college and university. It's not really a, a churchy question, surely. I ask the question because I think it's a, an important question for the people of God. It's a question that's constantly raised throughout Scripture. And maybe you don't recognize it because I'm using more contemporary language to engage you. The Bible may not talk about being smart or stupid, but it certainly talks a lot about whether a person is foolish or wise. Whole books of the Bible are given to the, the question of wisdom. Uh, some of us in December, those of us who read the Psalms, some of us took a little bit of time in December to read the book of Proverbs, a book of 31 chapters given entirely to the, the subject of wisdom. So this question of whether we're smart or stupid, whether we're wise or foolish, is important to the people of God because it's a biblical question. It's a question God wants his people to consider. And I'm going to say it's a particularly important question for us here at Hamilton Road because we say that our purpose is to make faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus cared about whether a person was wise or foolish. And if it's a matter of importance to him, then it has to be a matter of importance to us. Turn with me. You're in Matthew 5, but flick a couple of pages to Matthew 7. At the end of that chapter, Jesus gives us a, a short story, which gives us a very graphic image of a smart man and a stupid man, one who's wise and one who's a fool. Verse 24 of Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a crash. Lots of us are familiar with this uh, Bible passage, maybe through Sunday school, maybe through the catchy wee song, The Wise Man Built His House on the Rock. Don't let over-familiarity blind you to what Jesus is saying here. He says the world's made up of two types of people, wise people and foolish people. And he tells us what distinguishes them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a wise man. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is a foolish man. Jesus says you're smart or you're stupid, you're wise or you're foolish, depending on the extent to which you listen to him. Wow. It's a question we can't ignore. Let's stay in Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. What's Jesus referring to when he says these words of mine? He says it in verse 24, says it again in verse 26. Uh, he, he may be referring to all that, that he ever taught in his public ministry. I, I'd have no problem with that. I'd suggest that he's referring at this point, or, or we should at least say that he's referring to everything that's gone before in this part of Matthew's gospel. Chapters 5 to 7, as we've already said, they, they're a, a part of Matthew's gospel that we, we know as the Sermon on the Mount. We, we started in the passage which Raymond just read. We finished in this passage we read just now about the wise and foolish builders. This Sermon on the Mount, Jesus finishes his teaching here telling us that we're wise or foolish to the extent that we do or don't listen to him and do what he says. So I'm going to keep that question before you. Are you wise or are you foolish? Now that we've noticed where this is going and how Jesus' sermon ends, let's go back to the beginning, chapter 5, the passage we read a moment ago. I want to, while you're finding your way back there, I want to ask you another question. Who is your teacher? Every one of us has a person or probably a number of people who've been a big influence on us throughout our lives. Who are your teachers? Who's been the greatest influence on you? Take a moment to think about that. If you've got your journal, you might want to write the question and offer a couple of answers. It, it may be that it's one of your parents or both of your parents or some older relative. Whenever you were young, they helped you on your way and they've made a big impact that stayed with you in your life right into adulthood. It may have been a teacher in school or a leader in some organization. This person always seemed to have time for you. They always understood you. They, they worked with you in a way that inspired you and they've really helped shape your lives. 
It might be a friend or a companion, somebody who's accompanied you on your way through life. The longer you've known them, the more they've been an influence on you and they've shaped you. So far, I've mentioned people who are, are known to us, people with whom we, we share life at close quarters. Nowadays, our role models and our influences, they aren't limited to people that we actually know and spend in-person time with. The, the development of mass media and the recent development of the internet means that a host of, of celebrities and uh, people massive mass influencers they have a big impact on the lives of millions of people charlie d'amelio was a professional not a professional a competitive dancer for 10 years before she began her social media career in 2019 she started posting videos of her dancing along to pop songs on tiktok she was the first person on tiktok to have 50 million followers and the first person to have 100 million followers. She was born in 2004. She's 17. She influences 100 million people. Crystal Bauer is the founder of Live Greatly. So she's a, a professional motivational speaker. Her personal mission is to help individuals thrive personally and professionally. The internet's full of teachers like Crystal. And then there's Joe Wicks. How many of us got through the first lockdown without a bit of help from Joe Wicks, the celebrity body trainer and fitness influencer? Millions of people worldwide tune in to watch Joe Wicks. Cristiano Ronaldo finished uh, 2021 with 247 million followers on Instagram. Maybe you were one of them. These people and, and lots of others, they're influencers. They're inspirational speakers. They're effectively our teachers as we give our time and our minds to them. As well as the people that we do know who influence us, we have a lot of people who don't know who influence us in lots of different areas of life. If we're career-minded, we go to the, the management gurus it was Stephen Covey back in the day, maybe it's Marshall Goldsmith, for advice on successful leadership and management. If we're politically minded, we'll have our favorite commentators who help us navigate what's going on in the world with their columns in the daily newspapers. None of us would even dare venture into the kitchen anymore without a bit of help from Mary Berry or Jamie Oliver. We have our teachers and our influencers. Don't, don't hear that as a criticism. It's entirely normal. This is how human beings have always lived, how they make their way through life. It's normal to have people who are an influence on us. But it is good for us to stop from time to time to think about who they are. I'm asking you to stop this morning so that I can ask you a crucial question about your influences. Was Jesus Christ on your list? I've maybe taken you by surprise because you haven't even considered him in those terms. Have you ever considered Jesus to be the greatest influence on your life? 
Could you imagine when somebody asks you, as, as they maybe will as you move through life, who's been the biggest influence? Can you imagine very naturally, very unselfconsciously saying, Jesus? He's the person who teaches me how to live. Maybe you find it strange that I'm talking about Jesus in this way, but, but I do so because this is how Jesus thought of himself. He considered himself a teacher, and he considered us wise or foolish to the extent that we listened to him and did what he said. Let's look at our passage. We're going to limit our focus this morning to just the first two verses. We're just getting warmed up with the Sermon on the Mount here. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Whenever you imagine the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, you, you tend to have this picture that Jesus is teaching a crowd, and, and he is. But, but if you look again carefully at those opening two verses, you notice that it's Jesus' disciples who are around him. So rather than thinking of Jesus teaching a huge bunch of strangers, I think it's better to think of him as teaching his disciples with a crowd gathered around eavesdropping. Now, do you remember what we learned about Jesus' disciples? We were in Matthew's gospel, the first four chapters in the early months of last year. Jesus is the rabbi. He's the teacher. And he invites his disciples to come and to follow him, to be disciples, to be apprentices, to learn from him how to live. So now, in the opening verses of chapter 5, we see Jesus, the teacher, entering the classroom. Matthew tells us that Jesus sat down. It doesn't mean that he was tired. It means that he, he's about to begin teaching. The rabbis in Jesus' culture always sat down to teach. A, a rabbi sitting down is the equivalent of a pastor coming up the, the steps in church to, to get ready to teach. That's why his disciples then gather around him. But, but there's more going on here than just that. Matthew goes to great lengths to, to show us that Jesus is a brilliant teacher. Let me show you a couple of things. Some of you may have Bibles either with you this morning or at home where the words of Jesus are put in red. If there was a way of, of showing Matthew's gospel, maybe on quite a large poster, where you could see all the red bits in one place, you'd notice an interesting pattern. You'd notice that while there are bits of red right through the gospel, you'd notice five really big chunks. They're interspersed right through Matthew's gospel. So that's the first thing. Notice too what uh, Matthew tells us about the location of Jesus' outdoor classroom. He tells us that Jesus went up onto a mountainside. Hold those couple of things together. Tell me this. Can you think of somebody in, in the story of God's people, somebody in the history of Israel, who went on a mountainside so that he could bring God's word to God's people? A, a teacher, a figure who was associated with five blocks of teaching. Don't worry if you can't, but if you're thinking of Moses, 
pat yourself on the back and feel really, really smug. But only for a moment, because that's not good for you. All right? Do you see what Matthew's doing here? He, he's introducing Jesus by showing us that he's the new Moses. What we're going to see, actually, when we come to Matthew's gospel is that Jesus isn't just the new Moses. He's the far, far greater Moses. Moses was the great teacher in the history of Israel. Matthew's going to tell us, put Jesus beside him and say, Jesus Christ dwarfs Moses. He's the smartest person and the greatest teacher who ever lived. Uh, I realize as I'm saying that I'm using language you might not be accustomed to. Have you ever thought of Jesus in those terms as the smartest person and greatest teacher who ever lived? I'm going to assume that at least some of you haven't. And, and the reason I'm making that assumption is that I went through a large part of my life not thinking of him in those terms. I was a Christian. I'd heard the gospel and I'd responded to it. I'd asked Jesus to forgive my sins. I was trusting him to save me from my sin and from death. But I don't think I was convinced that he was the person who could teach me most about how to live life. He, he was good for saving people from death. But I'm, I'm not sure I was looking to him for life. I don't think I thought of him as the smartest person and the best teacher who ever lived. Looking back on that now, I find that strange. Folks, our commitment to Jesus Christ only makes sense if he really knows the truth about how to live life. Whenever we talk about Jesus as Lord, how could he be Lord? How could he be over all things if he's not the smartest and the wisest person who ever lived? If he's God... Could he really be dumb? Could he be ill-informed? Could he be naive? Folks, once we stop to think about it for a moment, if Jesus is who we say he is, then he must be the best informed, the most intelligent person of all. Jesus isn't just nice. He is brilliant. He always has the best information about the most important things in life. He's the smartest person who ever lived. And it's this Jesus who comes to us and he says, turn around, repent, follow me, commit yourself to me. I'll be your teacher. You be my apprentices and I'll show you life in all its fullness. Folks, I want to slow down here for a second because maybe this all sounds a little bit strange to you and, and maybe it's even making you nervous. Maybe you're more accustomed to thinking of Jesus as the Savior who died on the cross to save us from our sin and death rather than someone who can teach us about life today and how to live. That's certainly how it has been for me for many years in my life. In my tradition, Jesus was rarely talked about as a teacher. Over the years and during my theological education uh, and with my exposure to a variety of theological positions, 
I've begun to understand why this has been the case. At various points in church history, and certainly again in the middle of the last century, British evangelicals were fighting a battle against theological liberalism. There was a kind of a teaching that said, yes, Jesus is a great teacher, but no, he wasn't the son of God. His death on the cross has nothing to do with saving us from our sins. The great legacy of Jesus Christ is his teaching. That's liberal theology. You could put most of it under that quick umbrella. I want to make it clear to you this morning, just in case you miss me, there's no place for a theology like that in a church that takes seriously the Bible. God's word tells us, and Jesus Christ tells us himself, that he is God among us, come into this world to save us from our sins. He's the only savior of the world. When the evangelicals of the last century were faced with this kind of theological liberalism that wanted to reduce Jesus Christ, the savior, into only a teacher, a wise teacher. They reacted by playing down the role of Jesus, the teacher. The end effect, which I, I'm sure wasn't intended when they started out, was to diminish the importance of Jesus as a teacher and actually the importance of his teachings. We have done this for so long and to such an extent that we hardly notice it anymore. But you can be an evangelical Christian and pay very little attention to the teaching of Jesus himself in the Gospels. The truth is that if you listen to preaching in a lot of churches these days, it would never dawn on you that Jesus Christ had anything worthwhile to teach us. The Apostle Paul, he's the smart guy in the New Testament. John Calvin, he's the intellectual giant of our Reformed tradition. John Piper, he's the one you listen to if you want to learn how to live today. But Jesus, as a teacher? No, not really. Wouldn't know where to begin. Maybe I could summarize what I'm trying to say here. To the liberal theologian who says that Jesus is only a teacher, I'd say no. He is so much more. To an evangelical who's whittled down the gospel and who's taken away Jesus, the teacher, I'd say no. He's definitely not any less than a great teacher. I'd contend with them both that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is the smartest and greatest teacher who's ever lived. And I'd point them to Jesus' own teaching that we're foolish or wise to the extent that we do or don't listen to him and do what he says. Folks, this morning we're starting this series of studies in Matthew chapter five, verse seven, or chapter five through to chapter seven, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. I've decided to give this series a title. I'm gonna call it Discipleship 101. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that way of designating a, a course. In North America, courses are often given uh, three-digit 
uh, numbers to, to sort of classify them in a place that teaches a lot of courses. If the first digit's one, that means it's from year one or an introductory stage uh, of, of the teaching. Um, whatever the other numbers are after the one, the, the lower they are, the more introductory that course is. So whenever you want to talk about the beginnings of something or the introduction, you call it 101. Discipleship 101. Jesus has his disciples. They're just beginning their life together. He's going to teach them the most basic, the most introductory ideas about life as a disciple. That's what we're going to be looking at. We've met the teacher. We've a bit of an idea of what's coming in the course, what the title is. What's the course content going to be? Very quickly, what's Jesus going to be teaching about? If you flick, flick in your Bible there it's through the, the Sermon on the Mount and look for those headings that are in the NIV, you'll see the Beatitudes, salt and light, the fulfillment of the law, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, um, and so on. Reading that list of headings, you might imagine that Jesus is simply raising a variety of different topics that he wants to place before these young disciples. He's not. We'll see this as we go forward in the weeks ahead. He's telling them now about a whole new world. He's telling them and offering them an invitation into a, a way of life that finally and really is life. This, this whole sermon, Jesus' whole teaching only finally has one theme. It's all about life in the kingdom of God. Let me show you. Flick back to chapter 4 for a second. Matthew is introducing Jesus' teaching in a summary kind of a way. Look at verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. Flick back another chapter, chapter 3. John, Jesus' publicist, verse 2, he's preaching to prepare the way for Jesus. What does he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Both Jesus and John before him are inviting us to rethink life in light of the coming of the kingdom of God. What about this Sermon on the Mount? Is that going to be about the kingdom too? Look at that passage Raymond read for us this morning. Chapter 5, verse 3. The first sentence, the first of these famous Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Look down to the last of the Beatitudes, number 10. Blessed, verse 10, sorry. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins and ends these Beatitudes with promises of the kingdom. Whenever you bookend your teaching like this, I do it all the time. Whenever you start in one place and finish in that place, it's a way of saying everything I've said is about that one thing. These Beatitudes, they're not, they're not a, a bunch of different things. They're about one thing. They're about life in the kingdom of God. I'd love to be able to say more about the kingdom, but I'm out of time for this morning. We'll come back to that. 
I want to be talking with you more about the kingdom, and I want to talk with you more about the invitation Jesus gives you to come and to live your life in the kingdom of God. But for this morning, I want to just leave you with what we've thought about. We've met Jesus, the teacher. We've seen that he's inviting us to learn from him about the life that really is life, life in the kingdom of God. And I'm asking you, are you ready to step into the classroom? If you are, then I say you're smart. To the extent to which you're learning from Jesus how to live your life, that is the measure of your wisdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us your son. Jesus, we thank you for coming into this world. Thank you for dying on the cross for us in our place so that we need not die. Thank you too for teaching us and giving us your spirit that we might learn how to live. Help us, Lord, each one of us, to enter now into the life that really is life. Life where you are king. Life in the kingdom of God. Amen.